Welcome to another episode of Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topic of discussion. Before we get started, one real quick life update that I really want to mention is that I recently have been accepted into the Material Science and Engineering PhD program at Carnegie Mellon University. Now, I'm very, very excited, but I still have to hear from Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, Penn State, and Northwestern. Although I haven't been accepted to Penn State's program yet, I was invited to a prospective graduate student open house in February. So I am both very stressed and equally super excited for the next few months to unfold. More updates to follow. In this episode of the podcast, we go way outside of my comfort zone, both academically and, well, psychologically. My guest, whom I will reveal here in a second, joined the podcast to talk about parasites and their influence on public health. We also discuss trends in parasites due to climate change, what it is like to be a parasitologist, and why there should be more funding and more bodies in this field of science. To help me cover these sensational and enlightening topics, please allow me to introduce my guest by her internet handle, Mui Socks. Mui Socks graduated from the University of Colorado Boulder with a bachelor's in ecology and evolutionary biology. Before finding her love for parasitology and switching to a graduate school track, Mui Socks was on a pre-vet track. She worked as a veterinary technician for several years during school and a year post-graduation. During undergrad at Colorado Boulder, she was a part of the Boulder Chickadee Project that focused on the hybridization of black-capped and mountain chickadees and resulting ecological outcomes that included differing parasitism between the species and hybrids. Most of that work involved catching birds, setting up CO2 traps, screening blood samples, and sitting at the microscope sorting insect vectors. As a PhD student focusing on population health, her lab focused on researching a breadth of wildlife disease parameters. Her work focused on ticks and tick-transmitted parasites in wildlife with some attention on parasitism in mammals. The day-to-day -day included a mix of microscopy, fieldwork, and PCRs. Mui Sox started making TikToks about parasites while in grad school, but became much more serious about it after taking a step back from grad school. She inevitably fell in love with science communication, not only because of making content, but also because it has been a way to stay connected with her work and interests in parasites beyond mosquitoes. So, now that you've been introduced to my guest and the topic of this podcast, we're going to head into the first segment where we plan to give you a brief introduction to the science of parasitology. Enjoy. Mew, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be here, finally. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we talked about this a few months ago, and right, and some things happened, and I'm now in a different country, and you know, maybe going back to the states here in a week or so. I have no idea what's going on, but um, yeah, I'm recording from my hotel room in uh, Krakow, Poland. So just bear in mind, whoever's watching or listening to this, that we might have a technical difficulty here and there. I'm not sure, but we'll see how it goes. I'm also not using my mic, so. It's not going to be as crisp as normal, but this we're going to make it happen. Character. It'll be good. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So today's episode is going to be about parasitism, parasites, all that fun stuff. It, the, the stuff that makes your, your skin crawl, maybe, but hopefully by the end of this, you gain a different appreciation and you're like, oh, it's it's not all that bad. You know, maybe <laughs> I, I shouldn't worry too much. But this first segment is just, I guess, coining as a Parasites 101. So let's just start off like from the bottom. Let's build a foundation here. 
Mia, what are parasites? I love answering this question because it's not a simple answer. I think everyone expects me to instantly go like, oh yeah, here's a very standard definition. But there are actually two big categories that you can go by, which is the classical definition of parasitism and then the ecological definition of parasitism. And I am originally an ecologist before I dove into the world of parasites. So I do love the ecology definition and that's why I always toss it in there. Do you want me to start with the classical? Yes, please. Okay, classical is probably what most people who have like heard of parasites would think of. It's gonna be an arthropod, a protozoa, or a platyhelminth. And also if I'm throwing out way too many bio terms, Call me on it, because I can I can dumb them down. I don't even think I know what a platy helmet is. So here I, I I'm already showing where my knowledge lies. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. You know, we can we can build from the the very, very base ground level and get up to the cool stuff. But platy helmets is a really fancy scientific word for basically worms. It's divvied up into a bunch of categories, but like things like tapeworms fall in there. Those are under the platyhelminth umbrella with their cestodes. Then you can have like very classic worms, like hookworms, roundworms in there. And you get uh, also flukes, which are weird and not really human relevant. So no one really cares about them <laughs> when I talk about them at least. <laughs> Interesting. I, I do want to ask the quick question before we jump into the other main. That was the first, right? The That's classical pair. Classical. Right? Classical okay. arthropods, protozoa. Oh and worms okay do you want to state the second main group that way i don't cut off there and we forget about it uh the ecological one kind of rather than go off of like groupings of different organisms mm -hmm. it goes off of what what they're doing to their host so it basically is going off the idea of they are living off of or parasitizing their host in some way and that can be really broad which I think we're going to get into, so I don't want to spoil some things. But it can also be things like viruses, which gets really controversial because viruses fall into the category of are viruses alive? <laughs> but they typically, in classical parasitology, they never get grouped in there. You would never hear about them. But ecologists think they're, they're using the host resources. Why are they not a parasite? They should be considered one. Bacteria, parasite, mm. things like that. And so it gets really broad. I see. Yeah, I was. So that was actually going to be one of my questions. Not right now, but a little bit later, whenever <laughs> a, we were getting into I just into opened like a giant can of worms. So. <laughs> Barring just like that, that general definition or the, the general taxa of, of parasites. So are parasites all bad or can you also expand that into par parasites that are doing good things? Because like, I don't know, it seems like you, they could use the hosts by just cohabitating and being neutral or doing bad things or doing maybe good things. I, I feel like there's a spectrum. Is, is there not or is it all just bad? It definitely depends who you're talking to. But I, I would say spectrum, absolutely. In that classical definition, it's typically more of a negative relationship that your parasite is doing something that is like not arguable that it's not negative. When you get into ecological and things like bacteria, like E. coli, there's E. coli that can cause disease, and then there's E. coli that doesn't cause disease. And so people are like, well, they're both residing within the human body. Which Are they both parasites? Which one isn't a parasite? And so it gets a bit muddied. 
do you have like a word that isn't parasite that is like yes. established oh for gosh. good? <laughs> oh my gosh, I love this. I love this question. Okay, I wish I had like a whiteboard or something. But as an ecologist, you can think about things, you can think about every interaction between an organism and another organism as a basically a very simple positive and negative relationship. Maybe two positives, maybe two negatives. Just assign like a simple symbol to them and that's how they're interacting with each other. So if you think something like commensalism, they're having, uh, they're cohabitating with no negativity and no positivity. It's a net neutral. Something like symbiosis would be a positive and a positive. Predation, positive for the predator, negative for the prey. You can mm. like break things down very simply. And if you want to look at parasitism that way, it's positive for the parasite and it's negative for the host, but it's not predation because it has this little parentheses. <laughs> it has this little parentheses right after the negative that says, but it doesn't kill its host. At least, at least it's not trying to because parasites will kill their hosts. But the goal of a parasite is to keep its host alive. It's an infinite food source. Mm. Predators, their goal, they're just trying to eat it. They'll, they'll finish it off. Sometimes they don't kill it. You know, there's always exceptions, but that's what that little difference between predation versus parasitism is. Okay, so that makes sense. So that that just kind of murked the waters uh, for me because I thought I thought the good and the neutral aren't really part of of, of parasitism. Uh, the last biologist I had on, we talked about DNA and and and, uh, and what have you, and and I was like, so do cells actually, you know, replicate every seven to ten years? And she's like. I don't think so. I don't think that's a real thing. I think it's just something we tell kids. And and I, I came across like a fact, not a fact, but like a maybe like one of those science communication facts that are kind of just loose to give people like an excitation of a field. But there's like a, a hundred trillion organisms that are within our body and it like outweighs the amount of cells that we have by like 10 times it's like a 10 to 1 ratio we have like 10 mm -hmm. 10 trillion cells versus 100 trillion organisms in our body well in or on i guess mm -hmm. so, yeah yeah so i guess never mind i can't <laughs> make that connection that's gone i <laughs> it's i love that the the whole like i don't i mean i don't want to necessarily jump so far down a different rabbit hole and talk about microbiomes but yeah. microbiomes are so cool but also not everything that lives within you is always considered a parasite by everybody and i mean that's that's definitely something that you probably came across in that communication because mm -hmm. a lot of the organisms that reside within us are beneficial to us and so most people would not consider them parasites even though they are a thing living within us <laughs> just just saying if you're if you're listening watching this podcast we're probably not talking about good things we're talking about bad things okay just <laughs> fyi I thought we were talking about some good things. I'm sorry. Mew, Mew just doesn't want to talk about good things. <laughs> there, okay, there are, there's, if we want to be really large scale, there are benefits to parasites. Because I get this question all the time, which is like, okay, parasites, they must be horrible. Why don't we just like get rid of all of them? But parasites are an essential part of ecosystems. They exhibit control, basically. Here's a good example. It's not actually a parasite example, but I think it's easier for people to understand non-parasite examples and then translate that the other way. Are you familiar with uh, the Yosemite and Yellowstone uh, wolves and deer interaction? 
a little bit. Uh, I'm definitely no expert. <laughs> I've I've heard some some interesting uh, stories. I'll just say stories. They're not. I don't <laughs> know how factual they are. So I'll try to simplify it down as much as I can. Basically, wolves were absent from that ecosystem for a long time. They had historically been there. The deer population had gotten out of control and was overgrazing a lot of the fields and vegetation, which was actually causing harm to the ecosystem. It was causing erosion issues, and it was the deer were becoming overpopulated and you know dying off from different things like disease and things like that. You reintroduce the wolves, which prey on the deer, and it actually brought the ecosystem down into a more stable place where wolves keep the deer population in check, but the deer population doesn't go extinct. They continue to graze, but in a healthy manner. You know, say la vie, everything is in balance. Parasites fill a similar role. They help keep populations in check. Certain animals wouldn't would explode if they didn't have parasites. And yeah. parasites are there as basically a regulatory system. Yeah, and I'll make a quick parallel just so it, it kind of like sits with some people. You could think of the wolf problem as you would as a shark problem, that that top-down predator effect where it's, you know, taking out, it's kind of like weeding out the weak in a lot of circumstances where you have fish that have, they're not as efficient as others in their in their particular group. So they're more easily caught. They don't spread, you know, bad genes. I don't want to sound like like I'm saying it has bad genes, maybe like less it's, beneficial to the group. It's and a so fitness it's, thing. It's a fitness thing. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of like a fitness check. It's, yes, so I just exactly. I, yeah, I was trying to make some sort of a parallel. Yeah. <laughs> though though it's it's kind of like a bit dirty and I think people don't like to think about that concept, but it is like essential for a healthy population of animals mm -hmm. that like these parasites are in there and kind of like weeding out negative traits that would otherwise explode in the population and cause even greater losses than the losses from the parasite. Right. That's assuming though healthy levels of parasitism because there are also unhealthy levels of parasitism that are also indicative of an ecosystem that is out of whack. <laughs> That makes sense. That's the technical uh, term, out of whack. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we before we move into uh, why we want to talk about uh, parasites, I, I'm just curious, do you have some sort of a number that you could assign? Uh, I mean, like ballpark of like the amount of, of parasite species that we have like in our full um, tree of organisms. Like, what do you think it kind of makes up there? Is it is it? as big as what you what you would imagine or is it not as big as as what you would imagine i would imagine that's a very big question sorry yeah i don't have a number like a raw number it's definitely bigger than what most people expect especially if you're going off of a slightly broader definition of parasites because if you are mm -hmm. exclusively arthropods protozoa platyhelminths you're not going to include any other type of taxa which like excludes things that are like Vampire bats. Those aren't arthropods, protozoa, or platyhelminths, but they are parasites. I could have sworn I heard long ago in some early parasite lecture that there are more parasites that have independently evolved than like any other type of mechanism. Wow. I hate to like muddy this, but it's just depends I mean, on who you're talking to. to muddy it. <laughs> That's my whole field. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, so never mind. Scratch my question. It didn't have any meaning. So why why do we want to talk about parasites? What is the reason why people are tuning into to today's episode? 
at the very base level, I think they're super neat, especially if you're even vaguely intrigued by biology, because they have the coolest life cycles out there. When you're having an organism that uses at least one, usually multiple different types of organisms to complete its life cycle, that's cool. Uh, objectively, okay. I gotta be honest, mm -hmm. that's pretty cool. But also, I think a lot of people who have some general knowledge of parasites, like maybe they are aware of tapeworms or something like that, their immediate feeling is kind of like, oh, that's disgusting, that's kind of horrifying. And sometimes also people get a little bit scared. Like I have a lot of people that don't eat sushi because they heard that you can get tapeworms from sushi and now they are like paranoid. And I think if you understand parasites, you understand their life cycle, what they are a little bit better, it actually makes you feel safer because you're like, oh, I know that that, you know, the fish from this ecosystem is, you know, raised well, and it probably is not going to have parasites, and I'm fine. And if I get a tapeworm, I'm not going to die. <laughs> it's not the end of the world. I guess I was kind of privy to that as well. For a long period of time, just stayed away from sushi, but like, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty safe. I know some people in my field, like an, an old professor I used to work with, he doesn't eat sushi. That's just his personal thing. For me, sushi doesn't bother me so much. My big one is I will not eat vegetables that are unwashed. I will, I will not do that. Interesting. I can't tell you how many unwashed vegetables I've eaten out of my garden. <laughs> <laughs> Please <laughs> wash your I'm... vegetables. <laughs> that is like nice. the number one way that you will get toxo, that you will get worms and, and water. <laughs> I love how I'm like, no, I don't want people to be scared of parasites. But I'm also like, you've been eating unwashed vegetables? Yeah, worms. I wanted to bring this up if we were going to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, and the neutral of organisms that live in and on us. Because have you heard about the hygiene hypothesis where like people are, are too clean and there's like the potential that it's like kind of affecting our immune system and our allergies and stuff like that. Do you buy any of that? I have heard that hypothesis. There is a very popular parasite that gets grouped in there, which is hookworms. I, I, uh, th this is my personal opinion <laughs> because the science is still very, very yeah. out on this. I buy it to a degree, not to like a crazy degree where people are saying like, oh, you know, it's the cause for all the world's troubles that we are too, we're too clean. But some of those hyperactive immune system problems like Crohn's disease, things like that, do seem like they could be mitigated by parasitic infection from very limited research that's honestly not the best. <laughs> I want to put that out there. There was a, uh, a a researcher who I believe it was asthma. He had asthma, and he was like, "Hookworms are gonna kill, are gonna cure my asthma." So he infected himself. Wow! Which don't do that. <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't take. That's that's but a he, good point. <laughs> he claimed that they they cured his asthma, and that was kind of one of those root studies that was very wonky. Study is a strong yeah. word for that, honestly. I don't There's, like that. That's not a good study. You can't put yeah. studies on yourself. Because Here's now the you're just self-bias there, yes. <laughs> confirmation bias. And it, it's happened more than once. <laughs> oh, my. There was the guy who gave himself H. pylori, but that one actually did 
go into real science later on. But like the initial root science was very, very scuffed. But the the actual science that we have that is pretty legitimate behind the hygiene uh, hypothesis. Is that what you called it? Yeah. I've never heard that term before. Uh, I, I, I've seen clean or hygiene hypothesis. That's that's what I've seen. Mm. Basically, many parasites, especially parasitic worms, which typically live in our gut, are able to suppress our immune system to a certain degree. That way they can, you know, hide away and live and do their do their thing, do their parasite thing. And so with people who have very hyperactive immune systems, that that's where this, the theory is basically, is that the suppressant of the parasite would suppress their hyperactivity and make it more level. But infecting people with parasites is very iffy because, yeah. you know, what's the appropriate dosage? How can you regulate this? That's... Mm -hmm. I guess to also add a little context, because I don't know if we gave the context, but like the, <laughs> just the it. right, I just said, have you heard about it? I, I guess like the argument is that for most of humanity's existence, we have drank unfiltered water and ate unclean things and licked surfaces we shouldn't lick for our entire life. And, you know, you come in contact with good and bad things. And sometimes randomly, they end up being good. And over a long period of time, you can kind of form some sort of cohabitation, you know, like you scratch my back, I scratch yours with, uh, with certain organisms. And the thought is, that's why it's a hypothesis, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, uh, big hypothesis. That potentially taking away these relationships that we've built, you know, indirectly over eating uh, unclean things or drinking uh, unfiltered things, uh, you know, might be a negative, but that's not true. Uh, I wouldn't take that and run. I just brought it up because yeah. I didn't know what Mew had to say about it. I so. think it's an interesting topic. It, it is. But there's also, I mean, the big counter argument is that we we do not live in bubbles. It's not like we're not exposed to bacteria all day long. True. And Very true. It, yeah. It, there's probably less to do with us not having as many gut parasites and more to do with our advancements in modern medicine, actually making us able to survive past infancy when we have conditions that don't allow us to eat gluten. I, yeah, you know, I'd rather just live in a clean environment. I'll take my chances. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I think people in unclean environments would probably say the same thing. I, I think we can we can speak for the majority of people that they would not want to just drink any sort of water that they come they come past but yeah anyways so okay sorry off topic we're, we're back on the road we were talking about why we need to talk about parasites you said they're cool i totally agree but what else do you got and then whenever we're done with this we're going to wrap up segment one and uh we'll keep this train rolling parasites are something that are very neglected in the research world in the medical world in the public health sector i think i should preface that I'm looking a little bit more at the classical parasite description. So those arthropods, protozoa, and the worms, rather than everything, because viruses do get more attention, mm -hmm. but typically our classic parasites tend to be affecting people who are poorer, living in third world countries, and it gets swept under the rug a little bit. And that isn't always because it's intentional, but instead it's it's literally a lack of awareness. 
And so I think it's very part of why I love talking about parasites so much and like informing people is that a lot of these things are something that no one was really aware of. And so mm. it kind of brings light to a situation in different countries or honestly in your backyard. Cause like, it's not that, I mean, I'm in the United States. It's not that the United States is somehow parasite free because of magic or anything like that. There are parasites in the United States and some of them do get overlooked. Are you aware of, not to like always go back to hookworm, but hookworm is so good. But are you aware of the South's history with hookworm? No. So hookworm is a is a primarily human parasite. There's different species, but this is human hookworm. So it really only infects humans and it's transmitted from human feces back into the human body. And so a lot of that has to do with like poor sanitation processes. And back in the day, the South, and this is like back in the day being like the, the 50s, so not that far back in the day. Right. The South didn't have the best sanitation processes because there's a lot of groundwater there and there's not like very far for the sewage to go. And if you come in contact, it, it, I might have to go into the whole hookworm life cycle. It's very neat. But basically, if you step in contaminated soil, that's how you get infected. You don't actually have to consume it. It goes mm. through your feet usually. It's very cool. Very cool life cycle. <laughs> I, maybe not cool for you. Extra, extremely cool for me. But okay. Because of that, many people in the South were having, especially poorer people in the South, were having these really heavy hookworm burdens and hookworms feed on human blood. When you have a very, when you have less blood in your body, it's hard to work. It's hard to kind of, you know, be at your best, right? I would, yeah. This actually caused the whole, like, idea and the misconception that southerners were lazy and were just sitting around all day because they were infected with parasites so they were physically fatigued and that has carried on to today where there are like misconceptions about people from the south like they're uneducated because it's historically coming from a place of parasitism <laughs> and so huh. i think knowing about stuff like that really makes you take a step back for a second and go oh you know i'd made a joke about like you know, silly Southerners or something. And it's like, I didn't had no idea the history behind that and what other things might be influenced from these biological that's interesting. So literally in two episodes, we've covered how the misconception of, of people based on like, let's just say their phonetics, you know, the ability to enunciate something. And now something else that you can add to the mix, the fact that they were, they had hookworms inside of them. And, you know, slowed him down physically okay. had less blood <laughs> okay so there you go if you're saying bad things about southerners and you listen to this podcast you should really check yourself at this southerners point. are really getting a bad rap for <laughs> reasons outside of their control <laughs> yeah no i didn't know anything about that so that's good to i agree spreading that sort of awareness is good for you or for any of your listeners if they want to know more specifically about that hookworm south interaction i think it's pbs did a fantastic like documentary about it so shout out to pbs (laughs) pbs is like my third degree (laughs) a minor in pbs (laughs) i think so yeah pbs uh i give you a lot of views so you know you should like think about that you know you should get a maybe reach out to me (laughs) (laughs) how does parasites 
I'm curious, since we're talking about why we want to talk about parasites, how do they help us understand how uh, how animals, humans in that mix, obviously, and the environment intersect? Do you want to go over that? Yes. Yeah. And I'm going to try to come at it with an approach that isn't super technical, because I think that's a bit of a technical topic. Did you remember food webs? Yeah. So food webs don't include parasites, typically. But in actuality, if you were to make a realistic food web, they would. There's some scientists trying to do that. You know, good luck to them. That looks very difficult because where do you put them? But basically, a lot of parasites are multi-host, meaning that they will go through different life stages using different hosts. We could use uh, Toxo as a really good example because Toxo is pretty well known by most people. It falls in that this is Toxoplasma gondii, by the way. <laughs> I'm using if, if its fake name. <laughs> if you're a true uh, cat person, you, you, you should probably listen up. <laughs> Toxo is one of those parasites that I think, not that everyone knows it, but if, if you know a couple parasites, it's probably one of them. But we can go mm -hmm. into it later. But yeah. Toxo will use feline hosts as well as basically any other mammal host. And so to understand Toxo, you have to understand the interaction between the cat and the system, whether that's a domestic cat or a large bodied cat like a lion, and literally every single animal, <laughs> every single mammal, uh, Toxo is wild. Hmm. And by understanding you know, what hosts Toxo is getting into and how it's getting back into the cat, that can kind of elucidate the interactions between the cat and those animals, because that's actually showing even though it's a parasitism relationship we're talking about parasites it's actually showing also a predator prey interaction because toxo is spread through uh trophic transmission which is when you eat an animal i'm getting too technical <laughs> mm. and there's other parasites that are you know using different types of transmission like fecal oral and things like that and in order to see how those are transmitted you have to better understand the system as a whole Everything's interconnected. This is my like Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny. Like, <laughs> you know, I've got the board. Do you know what I mean? Yep. It's all connected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. So we need to know parasites to better understand the the food web, the interaction of the ecosystem. And to understand parasites, you have to better understand the animals. You can't have one or the other. Yeah. That makes that makes perfect sense. So the the last thing that we did have bulleted before we jump into break is that public health awareness for things like, like chagas and various uh, tick-borne fevers. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think we can we can talk about it more specifically later on because I think chagas is something that we both really want to dive into a bit. Mm -hmm. But that kind of circles back to what I was talking about before of their their parasites are something that are present in the United States. I think Lyme disease is one that really highlighted that for everybody. But there are other tick-borne diseases that many people aren't aware of. And they, they'll they be in the regions where that's, that's present and they don't know about that. A lot of people don't know if we keep it on Lyme disease, that Lyme disease is not just present in the Northeast. It's also present in California of all places. And that's very strange and very weird. There's a lot of cool science behind it, but 
without public health awareness, people don't realize that. There's also a bunch of other really vague tick-borne diseases like Babesia and Ehrlichia, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And nobody really knows about those. They all just know about Lyme disease and they look for a bullseye rash, which mm -hmm. by the way, only happens in like a third of Lyme disease cases. So it's not the best. It's better than nothing, but it's not the best indication. And so when we don't talk about parasites because they're icky, people don't know when they could be at risk and when they're not at risk. But come on, don't you only want to talk about comfortable things in, da in your daily life? Oh, uh, man, we don't like, that's the problem. We don't like I being have, uncomfortable. Yes, I have picked a topic, a very controversial topic to dedicate my life to. It's so fun at parties. But but it's good somebody has to be doing that because like i just said the majority of us don't want to be uncomfortable and don't want to talk about lyme's disease or or, or mm -hmm. other forms of diseases that we have no idea exist but they're literally in our backyards if we step outside yeah not to like hedge the fence a little bit but it also i don't want to scare people because i don't want to be like oh anytime you get bit by a tick it's the end of the world the more you understand about these, the less scared you actually have to be. Like Lyme disease, when you get bit by a tick, does not transmit immediately. It actually mm -hmm. takes several hours. So that can be kind of comforting when you find a tick on yourself and you're hiking in Pennsylvania, which is a pretty prominent Lyme diseaser. <laughs> Been on some hikes in Pennsylvania recently. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Well, if you find a tick on yourself after the hike, you know, you're out there for two hours, the tick's there, you're like, oh no, this is it. I'm getting Lyme disease right now. After you remove the tick, you can go, oh wait, you know, Lyme disease sits very low in the salivary glands of the tick. It takes a long time to transmit compared to other pathogens. I should still keep a lookout, but this doesn't need to be hyperventilating, end of the world. And I don't know, to me, that's comforting. I'm still working on trying to figure out how to teach people about parasites in a way that doesn't make them want to, you know, scratch their skin. <laughs> oh yeah. What is that phobia? I don't remember what that phobia actually is, but there's like a true phobia for like where you feel like things are crawling on your skin. Not with parasites, but just in general, just bugs on your skin or something. Oh, darn. Yeah. I'm going to have to look that up and I'll, I'll say it whenever we come back from this commercial break. So when we come back, segment two, we're going to talk about, and, and I'm going to get this right, from the taxonomy of parasites, we're gonna talk about classical parasites when we come back. Yeah. So stick around. Okay, we are back. This is segment two. And then I already forgot about the, what the phobia was. I think it's entomophobia. Yes, entomophobia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the sensation of, of things crawling or underneath your skin. So yeah, anyways. So this segment, we're talking about classical parasites. And since we were kind of on the subject of, of ticks and Lyme's disease, we might as well just like kick it off from there. And Mew, if you wanna, um, I guess, add to what you've already talked about, please be my guest. I would love to. I, I think it's worth mentioning too, in my PhD, ticks were my, my focus. So they're very near and dear to my heart, even though most people hate them. Not Lyme disease though, actually, but Lyme disease is not, Lyme itself is actually not a classical parasite. What, what a great start. <laughs> oh, well, darn. It, it's, oh, you should have stopped me. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm, I might get it wrong. I believe it's a spirochete is the word. 
but it is a bacteria that is spread by ticks. And so since the bacteria doesn't get considered typically a classical parasite, but ticks are a classical parasite. So Lyme disease gets grouped in with like the vast majority of parasite research because it's this, you know, flagship tick-borne disease. Mm. The tick that spreads it, so the real parasite, <laughs> to get controversial, <laughs> uh, is there's two of them. Well, there's actually three. The one that most people think of is Ixodes scapularis, which is sometimes known as the deer tick or the black-legged tick. That's the one that you're going to get in the north, northeastern United States and parts of Canada and also in the southeast, but it's different down there for different reasons. That's because they all got hookworm. It's, yeah, the hookworm. <laughs> it's actually, it's, all, it's because they have lizards. It's a weird thing. So Lyme's disease is not a human-specific pathogen. So it doesn't just affect humans, even though we mostly talk about that. It's actually a zoonotic pathogen, meaning that it exists within wildlife and within humans and there's spillover. It's been in the United States for a long time. The animals that we typically associate with it are deer and mice. I didn't but know mice. Okay. Yes. Mice are a really big part of it. <laughs> so ticks. Oh, this is a, uh, a large chunk I'm realizing. <laughs> I'm going to have to give you tick background. I'm going to have to give you dilution effect background. It's going to be great. So most hard body ticks, which is what you would think of for pretty much every tick, it, they go through different life sta stages. So they're eggs, they're nymphs, larvae, or sorry, eggs, larvae, nymphs, adults. It's been a minute since I had to think about it. And they usually take one blood meal in between each life stage, and then they molt and they become, ta-da, adult tick or nymphal tick. They feed on different animals during those life stages. Small ticks, so larval ticks, will go after mice. So the mice come in. Okay. If those mice are infected with Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the Lyme disease pathogen, the larval ticks will pick it up in their blood meal, and then they will molt, and they will carry it with them into their nymphal stage. But it don't carry it over. So and if it, <laughs> this is probably important to mention, adults, when they lay eggs, don't pass Borrelia into their eggs. So larvae are never initially infected. Okay. So if you got bit by a larval tick, you're probably fine. For, for Borrelia. Other pathogens get passed that way. The reason that Lyme disease got so bad, this is one reason in the Northeast, is due to this thing known as the dilution effect. If you think about how we build our suburbs, we really enjoy keeping like a really thin strip of woods in between all our houses because it's pretty, right? Mm -hmm. It's nice. You feel like you're in nature, but you're not really in nature. Most animals can't really survive in those types of environments. It's considered too much edge for them. There's not like a deep wood section. So only certain animals will thrive in those. The animals that thrive in those are mice, rats, and deer. They do great. Deer love edges. Mice do great with human zones. And so when we built these suburbs, we took away a lot of the natural ecosystem, a lot of the diversity of animals, you know, where, the, where did the foxes go and things like that. And instead, you're just left with a bunch of deer and mice who are really, really good hosts for Borrelia burgdorferi. 
So it ended up causing a boom of Borrelia within the ecosystem, which now all these ticks are picking up Borrelia from every single animal. They're biting humans. You get an epidemic of Lyme disease, which is all wow. cascading from how we built our houses. Wow. Okay. It was a very long way to get to the, the cool part, in my opinion. It's so funny. I, I think I've spent many podcasts of mine saying like, the built environment that we've created is not good. It's not sustainable. And now it's like it adds a little a little bit extra to that. You're sprinkling a little bit on there where it's like, okay, we don't like the built environment that's all concrete. And then when we introduce a, a small strip of, of greenery. That's so <laughs> bad. Epidemic. Like, I have that in my backyard, actually. I've got like a good six feet of woods. Mm. And it's just full of feral cats and a bunch of mice and occasionally deer. But if you also, if there's actually like a counter theory to the dilution effect, which I won't go into too much. Uh, a lot of times we also think of diseases like zoonotic diseases like Ebola coming out of the jungle. And the jungle is typically a very diverse place with lots of different animals. So that's the counter theory is that when you have a lot of different animals, you would have options for all sorts of crossover and mutation. It's probably both are true for yeah. different pathogens and different systems. The, the system that we created just mm -hmm. caused the epidemic. That, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> I, to just like really clarify what the dilution effect is, because I kept throwing that word or that phrase around. It is the theory that if you have a healthy ecosystem with a vast diversity of different animals or hosts for pigs or mosquitoes, that that would dilute the number of good hosts for tick-borne or mosquito-borne pathogens therefore causing less disease. So by having lots of animals, not every single one is a good host, and therefore your tick's gonna feed on everything. It doesn't care, it doesn't know which one has uh, you know, Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. It's less likely to get Lyme disease and spread it. But if you have a small diversity of hosts and those hosts are going to be good vectors for the disease, you end up with an unhealthy ecosystem. Is there like a common solution? to that <laughs> at least it at least to the to the suburbia i have a strip of of uh of woods in my backyard is other than saying let's just change suburbia is there is there like anything that like has been pitched uh, as an like any ideas out there the the solution is don't build the strip of woods it's it's better instead of making these patches and these edges to just have a dedicated, large, wooded area that can be public space, that can be near your houses. That's great. But like, make it something that has deep forest within it. It can't just be like a thin strip. Yeah, there's no good solution, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, this is why we just, you just educate people on how to identify. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you are you only planning on talking about Lyme disease, or do you want to touch on any any other, or are you good? You want to move on? I think the only other one that I would love to talk about, and it's much more simple than mm. Lyme disease, is alpha gal, which okay. is also not a parasite, <laughs> but because it's spread by ticks and ticks are parasites, again, it gets grouped in. This one also gets a lot of attention in the United States. I mean, I'm United States based, so I think a lot of my tick knowledge is more based here. But alpha-gal is the name of a sugar <laughs> uh, that you oh. find 
yeah, Alpha Galactus um, in Red Meat. I think we talked about this mm. in our little pre-interview, not to break the illusion, <laughs> but <laughs> Alpha Galactose is a sugar found in red meat. And basically, this is a disease known as Alpha Gal that's being spread by the Lone Star Tick, which is different from Ixodes scapularis, the Lyme disease tick. It's found in the South rather than in the North, it's primarily Texas, hence the Lone Star aspect. Mm -hmm. It also has a dot. Basically, this tick will feed on red meat animals, pick up that alpha galactose, transmit it over to humans, and you'd go, okay, well, what's the disease here? It's just got sugar in it. But the science is a bit weird. We believe it's a, like causing a, an immune reaction. It's stimulating some kind of immune response. And the, for some reason, our immune system is targeting that alpha galactose and mm -hmm. basically creating an allergy to an extremely common sugar. Ooh. And it's all residing from a tick bite. Ooh. Yes, it's brutal, actually. I am much more worried about getting alpha gal than I am about getting Lyme, which might be a controversial opinion for people who have Lyme. But alpha gal means that you cannot consume any type of red meat you can't consume food that has come in contact with red meat so if you go to a restaurant and they use a, like a the same pan to cook your potatoes as they did a steak oh man you will have anaphylaxis you will have a severe allergic reaction and some wow. people it lasts for their whole life and other people it goes away in, after a couple years wow okay it's brutal it's um relatively new as far as like tick-borne pathogens go I mean, yeah. it's several. We've known about it for several decades, but that is new in the field. Yeah, I've heard. I've seen a few videos and stuff bubble up about it, and that's whenever you and I chatted and you brought it up. I'm like, oh, that's what I. That's what yeah. I'm hearing about. You'll Yikes. usually see something like this: tick will make you allergic to red meat, or this tick will make you vegan. I was just about to say that. I was going to say, well. I guess the way we fight conventional farms is just give everybody <laughs> I have uh in the past when I did my tick work, I mm -hmm. it was kind of like many of my coworkers were just like, Yeah, you're gonna get alpha gal. I did not get alpha gal, but a lot of my coworkers did. Wow. It's, it's just so common. And unlike Lyme disease, it does transmit very quickly. No, wow, that's that's crazy. I hope somebody's throwing some funding at that because Oh, they are. They are. There's a lot. There's a lot of meat, uh, red meat lovers in the United States. So this is also happening in like Texas, which is kind of oh, a boy. red meat capital. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's lunch and dinner. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So moving on, um, mosquitoes. We wanted to talk about mosquitoes. Not, I think, just malaria. Not, not all of yeah. the other. Okay. Yes. Everything. Mosquitoes transmit so many pathogens. They're the only thing that beats out ticks pathogen-wise. Aren't they our second greatest threat? Like human's second greatest threat? I, I, yes. Maybe I, I got that wrong. Yeah. yeah, I think malaria alone cracks the top five of deadliest human diseases. And that includes things like tuberculosis. My gosh. So. Wow. Yeah. You're gonna you're making John Green really mad right now because I, all he's <laughs> I mean good on him, but like <laughs> I, I think tuberculosis in might just it beats out malaria depending on which species of malaria you're looking at. Oh. There's two big ones. 
I think it's important to note, and maybe we didn't talk about this. We were planning on talking about this, so maybe spoilers. I'm not sure. Just because mosquitoes carry a bunch of pathogens and kill a bunch of people doesn't mean that we should just eradicate them, right? Yeah. <laughs> they they have major implications to the ecosystem. Like one is obviously like being a part of the food web. <laughs> their their larvae get uh, eaten by by fish. Mm -hmm. and, their larvae um, prey on other things. They help keep populations in check. Yeah, and then also and, the parasite aspect, keeping populations in check. Pollinating. Yeah, yeah there you go. Something that um, I always think about when people, people because mosquitoes are the big one that everyone gets like, let's eradicate them. There have been some strategies for local eradications of the sterile insect technique. But historically, we're really bad at eradicating things. <laughs> We've only done it twice. And only one of those was a human pathogen. I was going to say, we, we end up like eradicating other things. Like yeah. we throw out like an insecticide that we think is going to kill mosquitoes and it kills something DDT. else. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh, you try to yeah. kill the mosquitoes, you kill the bald eagles instead. Uh, yeah. And also anything that's going to target mosquitoes is likely going to hit a lot of other insects as well. Of course. Deep, like insecticides really harm bees, which everybody loves bees. So, you, you know, in some. Sorry, asterisks, asterisks, just honeybees. Sorry, my bad. Continue. No, no it, I think it's important because I, that's definitely something I hear the most in like my comments on TikTok is just like, we should kill all the mosquitoes. Why can't we kill all the mosquitoes? And there's so many answers to it, but I think one of the big ones is just we are really bad. At eradicating one specific thing we're not great at that and anytime we try to like tamper with like something that large on like an ecosystem level we end up making things so much worse <laughs> yeah you know hats off to like like mosquitoes just in general just because like of how rapidly they're like evolving to like human influence and also the attempt to try to eradicate them with different insecticides and stuff, they've become immune to them, which is mm -hmm. really impressive, I think. Um, so there's just like this co-evolution between humans and, and mosquitoes. <laughs> so if you think we're you're getting rid of mosquitoes, sorry, spoilers, it's not, it's probably not happening. <laughs> uh, usually what people think about when they're trying to eradicate a, a pathogen is that it mm -hmm. has to fill specific criteria. And those criteria, one of them is that it has to be like a single host parasite. Basically, like it's only in humans, like smallpox. Mosquitoes feed on everything. Like if mm -hmm. people go, oh, what if you could give people like a vaccine that kills mosquitoes in this sci-fi world? What about the mosquitoes that don't feed on people in their life cycle? You know, not, not because like they never feed on people, but just because that time around that mosquito didn't feed and it still reproduces. You're not going to be able to target every single mosquito it's just it's physically not possible so you're saying i could potentially make a lot of money by writing a sci-fi book where there's a scientist that develops nano robots that can attack mosquitoes on the attempt of sucking blood okay okay white parasites with parasites there That's, you go <laughs> i think you're saying that as a joke but that actually is a real strategy to to fight mosquitoes oh Okay. It's it's a uh, there's a parasite called Wolbachia, and there are some people who will use Wolbachia 
and like engineer it. It's it's very like very very theoretical. It's only been applied a couple of times, but they will give it to mosquitoes. They'll infect them, and the idea is that the Wolbachia will prevent them from getting infected with things like malaria because it wow. will like compete. Ooh. I might be dumbing that down a bit too much for anyone who's a Wolbachia specialist. <laughs> That's really cool, though. That's really cool. So uh, the, the the nasty part about malaria is that, like, once you kind of get infected with it, it also opens you up to just the continuation. Like, it attracts more mosquitoes to then yes. continue to. Yeah, that's. Yeah. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. We see that a lot, actually. Like, parasites you know, their whole, their whole goal, every animal's goal is to reproduce. Yep. And so parasites do that just in really neat ways by making you, especially vector transmitted parasites. So parasites that use another organism to live like ticks and mosquitoes. The, the, I'm talking about the parasites within the ticks and mosquitoes. Those are vector born, not the mosquitoes themselves. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's like a Russian nesting doll of parasites, honestly. <laughs> great but, analogy. Yeah next one and we already gave a bit of a, a prelude to it and that's toxoplasma uh gondii so yeah i guess uh, i should probably introduce what the parasite is it's an intracellular protozoan parasite it's just so everyone is imagining you know it's not a worm it's living inside your cells very cool like that and in its natural sylvatics like poster child life cycle it would be a wild cat and some type of wild cat prey. Usually a mouse is what you would, would imagine. Let's start with the cat. Cat's infected with toxo. It's living inside of its cells. It's just doing its thing. That's where it reaches sexual maturity. It reproduces, it passes its oosis, which is the, it's kind of similar to like an egg in the feces of the cat. Rat comes along. Mm, yum. <laughs> it's probably actually eating things that the poop are on, not the poop itself but it consumes those oocysts. In the rat, it does something a bit different. It will infect every cell, pretty much, as many as it possibly can. It goes through these, like, bradyzoite phases. There's also other phases as well. I'm gonna, I don't have all the terms in front of me right now, so I'll probably be butchering it. But what its job is, what it's trying to do is get from the rat back to the cat. It has to have the rat. That's an important part of its life cycle. It can't just go cat to cat. But what's the way it gets from rat to cat? It gets the rat eaten. So it does all these neat things, like making a rat more attracted to cat urine. Normally, the smell of cat urine would be like, hey, predator here, I should go away. But instead, when infected with toxo, the rat's like, cat urine here, I should hang out. This is a great safe spot. And that's all because the parasite's trying to influence it to do behavior that will make it get eaten. If you have a cat, you shouldn't be worried about it. But the fun part is like trying to figure out how much, like if I see here on this journal from the Journal of Science, right, saying that about 11% of people are infected with this parasite in the United States. And, you know, depending on on where you are, that, you know, the infection rate is a lot higher than than others. It's really high Um, in Japan. But the the question is, is like, you know, how it it affects uh, rat brains surprisingly the reason and and unfortunately why we test rats a lot is that they have a pretty similar brain structure to what humans do um so the question is how much does this parasite affect human brains (laughs) and that's 
that's always a, a, a fun topic. And it's also extremely hard to test. So because yes. we're not going to run trials on humans. <laughs> you cannot infect people with Toxo just to go, oh, we want to see. Because it does, it does cause disease in some people too. Even mm -hmm. beyond like ethics, like that you would be making people sick. Yeah. The one thought is that there's a potential increase in the risk for schizophrenia in some people. But there's no, there's no definitive evidence there there's no definitive correlation if it is it's really small the and way like, those studies work is typically they're just trying to get as like a, a the largest number of individuals possible to test ideally mm -hmm. a bunch of people with schizophrenia then how many of them have toxo and also if they can correlate were they infected with toxo prior to being diagnosed with schizo or after because I, I don't want to like rag on the scientists who are doing that work i do think Given the limitations of human research, that is important and Toxo does affect your brain. The theory with the schizophrenia aspect is that Toxo actually, I can't remember if it's increase or, or decreases, but it alters our production of dopamine. And the production of dopamine is directly linked with schizophrenia. So there is actually some strong, strong depending on who you are, there is some, some decent science behind this. This isn't just correlation. Yeah. And of course, I mean, whether it's positive, negative, or, or in between, it still results. I mean, that's still good science, right? Mm -hmm. I can read right, right out of here. It says that um, there's no direct result of toxoplasmosis, like infection. It, it's to schizophrenia. It's, it's, it's really low. Um, how low it would be premature to put a number on it, but uh, it appears to be kind of like on par with schizophrenia risk factors that you probably, you know, don't really worry about in your everyday life, like living in a city. So I think you should be fine okay. and you shouldn't fear having yes, a cat yeah. and you should cook your food and you should change the litter box. <laughs> wash and, your vegetables. And wash your vegetables. <laughs> Especially so. if you've got feral cats in your garden. Um, okay, cool. So... Toxoplasma gondii, done. I think this is, we're gonna get into some different examples. The next one is vampire bats. Why are they a parasite? I recently just had like a discussion about this on my, on my TikTok um, mm. because I, I think it's fun to pose questions to people to get them to think about stuff rather than just always, you know, tell them the raw hard facts. And so vampire bats are not typically when you think parasite, they're not there in your head. But when you think vampire bat, a lot of people did seem to come to the conclusion like, oh yeah, when you think about it, yeah, they're a parasite. So why don't they get grouped in then when we're thinking parasites in general? They seem to be excluded. And when you look at them more closely, you're like, oh yeah, sure, that's a parasite, but you wouldn't consider it. It's kind of due to that classical bias. I have a little bit of beef with it, honestly. The whole exclusion of just arthropod, protozoa, body helmets. It tends to be too focused and it doesn't allow us to look at other systems and consider them so people kind of get tunnel vision because vampire bats by all accounts are parasites they require blood to survive they have specializations in order to feed on blood which is all things that you would expect from a parasite that they need this to live that they have specializations to have them do it without it they would die they've got host selection it's just that Maybe because they're mammals, we tend to think of them separately. 
I found it very interesting just to see how people's cogs kind of worked on that topic because most people were like once posed with the question, are vampire bats parasites? They went, yeah, okay, sure, of course. But it's just, it doesn't come to the mind right off the bat. And that's because I think our idea of what a parasite is, is a bit limited sometimes. I'm still trying to think how, how I would classify that as being a parasite because it does live off of uh, blood of others, but like, can't you then start extending that in a way towards like things that just like need meat are only carnivores and need meat of others to then survive. Cause like, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't like cohabitate for the benefit of, of its survival. It just sucks blood and leaves. Uh, it doesn't like stick so around on the skin or I, yeah, I know that's, that's what I was going to, that's, that's the first thing that popped in my mind. Like, how could I make this argument? Because mosquitoes you're thinking, yeah. are parasites. Because mosquitoes absolutely parasite, but you're probably yeah. thinking for other blood feeders, ticks who like live on host. Yeah. And that's kind of like an idea that we all, it's just, it's, it's these conceptions that we hold onto in our heads mm. um, that this parasite has to like live on or in the host for the majority of their life. Actually ticks don't even live on their host for the majority of their life. They spend a lot of time off just, mm. you know, molting, living their life. But vampire bats, I mean, the difference between them and a carnivore, if we go all the way back to the beginning of this, is vampire bats never intend and, in fact, do many things to prevent their host from dying. They never have the intention of consuming their host, never have the intention of ending the life of their host, because that would be the end of a meal. They can keep coming back to the same cow over and over if they keep it alive. So all those anticoagulants, all those things like that, that they can use to make sure that they get their, their meal without ending the life are all aspects of a parasite versus a carnivore has nothing to keep yeah. its host alive. Sometimes things get away or they live, but that's not a goal of it. Right. No, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Good. It's good See, to think about these things. Even something when I first was posed with the vampire bat question, my knee jerk reaction was actually no. Mm. I was like, Oh, par- you know, vampire bats aren't parasites. And then I, I had to take a step back and go, wait, why did I say that? That doesn't make sense. And chew it over and go, no, they fit all the criteria. It's just sometimes in our head, we we have these made up boxes that we're trying to fill. I guess we, we also wanted to talk about... Another controversial parasite. <laughs> yeah, the cuckoo. Mm-hmm. Um, please tell me your take. Are you familiar with what the cuckoo does? I'm going to take a stab um, that... They're birds that will uh, infiltrate a nest. They'll lay their eggs and potentially toss out one of the eggs or just lay an egg without knowing. I don't think they're also just cuckoo. I think I think that extends to like other organisms, correct? I think cuckoo is just like a word, uh, like, a, like a descriptor, right? Cuckoo and, is a type of bird, but there are, oh, really? I believe, other birds and animals that do similar practices. Yeah, but okay. the bird is a re- is a real bird. He's like the poster oh. child of that type of behavior. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I I think I I basically explained it. But please, oh, you did great. Yeah, ten out of ten, A plus. <laughs> yeah, the cuckoo will lay its egg in another bird's nest. It doesn't build its own nest. It'll lay its egg there, and have that bird take care of its egg while it goes and does you know whatever it wants. And when the cuckoo baby hatches, it will typically push the other ones out of the nest. 
It's nature's daycare without the nasty ending. Mm -hmm. yeah, there you go. That's the sound bite of a cuckoo. Based on that description, is it a parasite? Sorry, I asked you that right as you took a drink. <laughs> and, and for your audience too, chew it over. Would you, Nijer, don't Google it. Is it a parasite? I want to say yes, just based on our previous conversation, just because it's taking advantage of the host in a way that it's not particularly, it's like to the benefit of it, I guess. Like it's just daycare, dropping it off for so many time. And then it hatches potentially, hopefully not harming the others, but it probably does. Uh, I'm, you know, we got to keep it kind of PG here, but it is taking advantage of the other host in that way that I think it's parasitic. It's interesting to chew on though. I will, I'll tell you the answer in a second, but I will give you the counter argument first, which is okay. that the adult cuckoo, besides the whole egg laying aspect, doesn't require a host for food. It just is a normal bird that eats insects, things like that, berries. I'm not actually sure what the cuckoo diet specifically is, but given its size, probably something like insects and seed and things like that. So unlike a vampire bat, it does have other options for sustenance. Mm. Does that change your answer? I'm going to say no. That was my final answer, uh, that, <laughs> well, it, that it's parasitic. You are correct. It is It is considered a parasite, typically. It's not going to get grouped in again with like ticks and things like that. It has a special term, which is known as a brood parasite, because in that life stage, it has no option but to exhibit parasitic qualities, even mm. though the rest of its life it's doing, you know, normal bird stuff. Even though it could just not be lazy and build its own nest and hatch its own I, eggs. But I actually, not a cuckoo expert, you know, sorry to break the illusion, but I don't know if they are physically capable. Like if you put them in a, a lab setting and said, hey, there's no nest, nothing for you to lay another egg in, would they physically be able to build, build one? Because they might not have that behavior in them. Yeah. So, yeah. I was just poking fun. Oh. That, 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 that makes sense. Like, you know, they could just not be lazy. Yeah, you know. True, true. It, you know, why, does, why doesn't the parasite just get a job? <laughs> but it is, it's one of those things where there's a lot of different categories of different types of parasites, like the brood parasite, that are atypical and really break away from that classical definition. They still fit into the ecological definition. And so that's why I am a hater of the classical definition. <laughs> huh. So, okay. But, and then there's another one. That I th is this one that's controversial? Um, feeding off Barnacle? Of yeah. Is, are, are barnacles, like, is it really controversial? I, does it f feed off of a host? I, I know they obviously latch onto, like, like after a good portion of its uh, adolescence, it will then anchor to a boat a turtle, a whale, etc. But is that parasitism if they're just latching on or are they also feeding off the host in some way or taking advantage of the host in an, other than just hab habiting there? It is not parasitism, typically. I'm sure there's some people who could argue with me, but I have never heard of people considering the, the barnacle that you're thinking of because there is actually a parasitic barnacle. Oh. But the typical barnacle that you would find on like the outside of a boat or on like a sea turtle shell, those are not parasites. Cause if you think about 
the fitness exchange there, they're a single barnacle on a sea turtle. Cause I know when they get into like crazy numbers, they can cause problems, but in mm. single one or just a handful don't actually affect the sea turtle at all. They don't feed off of it in any way. They're just hitching a ride. And Gosh, so, you know, a good parallel would be like base mites on human beings. They're just there. They're not parasites. They're just there. They're eating some oils off your face, but it's not doing anything. You know what? Those are considered parasites. Uh, you know what? <laughs> All right. I, I this is Science. this is dude. <laughs> being an ecologist means that there, you know, there's an exception to everything. I love throwing all these like right when you think that I'm going one direction, I'm actually going that direction because ecology is all about, you know, exceptions, exceptions, exceptions. But yes, face mites, because they eat human skin, they're feeding off of us and they're, they're, they have to do that. They're obligate. Mm. Parasite. Even okay. though we don't physically like experience harm from them, we don't get any benefit and they feed off of us. Um, yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, fun fact about barnacles, it took almost a hundred years to figure out its taxa. And it took Darwin at least eight years to figure out. He I think he was the guy that finally it finally clicked, but like the world's best like biologists had such a hard time with barnacles. <laughs> and and Darwin finally spent eight years of his life trying to figure out how, how barnacles fit in the tree of life. Uh, and they got it that. wrong. They were all wrong. Yeah, <laughs> completely wrong. Like, Where were they putting it for a while? From a biologist standpoint, it was very wrong. Like, not just like, oh, it was in like a different like um, uh, order or something like that. It was like in the different phylum, maybe. It was that wrong. Oh. Like high, high up, right? You know, phylum I, class order. I would not be surprised if they thought they were plants somehow. No, uh, that was that. I think that was a like a a a, a fungi mistake, right? That where yes, they, that was. Yeah. I don't know if it was that bad, but it was it was pretty close, right? Because you know, fungi is its own kingdom, and I think phylum was it was in the wrong phylum, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, sad. I did double check. Barnacles are animals, and they're arthropods more specifically. Okay. So same group. Barnacle mm -hmm. is more closely related to something like a tick or a mosquito. Nice. So classical parasite. <laughs> nice. <laughs> there, there is one parasitic barnacle though that does not look like a barnacle at all. And it's it's actually so cool. Hank Green actually just did a video about this for like his spooky Halloween he was doing like a bunch of spooky science stuff and oh, so why yeah. not throw a parasite in there and he threw in this barnacle parasite which is called saculina that invades the inside of crabs and just it you can find pictures of it 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 webs out throughout the entire crab's body and just quite literally takes control of it it's uh it's very cool it also like will on female crabs it will reproduce it, like the barnacle will reproduce where a female crab would normally keep her eggs and will get the female crab basically to protect this barnacle offspring. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. And okay. it can also oh. turn male crabs into female crabs. It's a, it's a very cool parasite. Come on, you're making the frogs gay. 
<laughs> I hate that I've said that at least three times in the last week. Um, I'm giving someone PR that shouldn't get it. That's no. <laughs> it, it is so funny because it kind of fits there. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the last thing that we wanted to talk about that was an example of a parasite. You wanted to talk about Chagas disease, right? Chagas mm -hmm. disease. I'm saying that right. Chagas. Like Chagas. Chagas. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I should preface with why Chagas is so intriguing to me right now because it actually started as a parasite that I was vaguely familiar with, had learned about in several parasitology classes. It's a the parasite is actually called Trypanosoma cruzii. Chagas is the name of the medical disease for any nitpicky people out there. <laughs> but as I was researching this parasite, I had come across some articles that I was using for some of my research that were pointing in a direction that I was a bit surprised by, which is that their Chagas is typically considered something that you would see in South America. It's spread by kissing bugs, and it's it used to be quite widespread there. Fortunately, it's getting into more controllable elements. And it's never really been considered as something that was a United States pathogen, which is a bit strange because I would also see in articles, especially from the last like two decades, I would see lines that say the United States cannot be considered a place of non-endemicity for Chagas, which as scientists makes me go, what? What does that mean? Is it there or is it not there? Yeah. So I dove into it a bit more. Currently, the United States considers that about 350,000 people have Chagas here in the United States, which I assume most people listening have probably never heard about Chagas. But the numbers on that are a bit weird because those are not confirmed cases. <laughs> those are estimated cases based on the number of immigrants coming from South American countries to the United States and the rates of infection in those countries. And they're just going, okay, so 8% of Brazilians coming to the United States likely have Chagas, that adds to that total, which is weird. And I've got feelings about that. Yeah, it's not good data. It's not good data. And I really don't like that. Confirmed cases in the United States are a bit weird because we don't have a great testing system for it. They will test your blood like once <laughs> with no questionnaire. Uh, and if you test negative on for a disease that is extremely hard to test for, they will never test you again. And that's weird. And you might go, okay, why does it matter? Because we don't have the kissing bugs in the United States. But we do. We have lots of kissing bugs in the United States. We've got like 12 species, I believe, that can spread. It might be more than that. I know there's at least like 11 or 12 that are really strongly associated with humans that spread Chagas. They're really common in the Southwest, places like Texas, Arizona, Southern California, but they go all the way up into places in the Midwest, a little bit into the East, Georgia, Florida. So we've got the kissing book. Okay, well, maybe we don't have the parasite. Well, wildlife studies and studies testing the kissing bugs find that we do have wildlife infected with Chagas in the United States. Raccoons, opossums, armadillos, lots and lots of different animals, cotton rats. And the kissing bugs themselves do also have Trypanosoma cruzii. A study out of Texas found one in two kissing bugs have, of their study have Ooh. Trypanosoma cruzii. Wow. 
and I, I, I think I should probably preface too, because I, I, it might sound like I'm trying to say like, there's like, you know, the government's doing something. I'm definitely not. I think the real core thing here is that science takes a long time to collect data before the needle moves in medicine. And we are currently at a phase where that's starting to happen with Chagas. That's really, I think, the big picture I'm trying to paint here is that the science is pointing one direction and medicine mm -hmm. is starting to shift that way. So yeah. not trying to be like, your doctors are lying to you or anything, because that is not true. Your doctors are doing their absolute best with the information yeah, that's available. Yeah, I don't think that's conspiratorial. <laughs> what, what, what the, what's actually happening. I want to be yeah fully transparent about how I feel. But basically, the picture that's being painted by a lot of the studies coming out is that we do have kissing bugs, we do have shagas, and we do have wildlife maintenance of shagas. So that's all that's there. And now we're starting to see some human cases be detected as well. There is like one caveat that might indicate why we might have lower numbers of infection of Chagas in the United States, because part of how you get infected from a kissing bug, there's a couple of different routes. But the main route is that a kissing bug will feed around your mouth because they kiss you, kissing bug, and they do this while you sleep, and then they will defecate and pass the pair. Yeah, I know. Oh, this is probably the nastiest one. <laughs> they will defecate. You have an itchy scratch on your face, so you go, uh, oh, gross, I have an itch, and scratch it, and you rub the feces into the cut. Boom, parasite in your blood. The behavior that we see out of a couple, very, very few studies, but a couple of them have shown that the kissing bugs that are predominantly in the United States might defecate later, and so they might be defecating off-host, which would mean fewer infections. So that could be the, that's the one thing pointing in a more positive direction for Chagas, which like snaps, that would be cool. But basically as a researcher reading all these papers, it was kind of upsetting, honestly, because I, I, I originally from California, like I had never heard of Chagas before. It's extremely hard to treat once it goes chronic. And when it goes chronic, it can cause things like heart failure, and to know that like there might be people in the United States infected with this that are unaware of it and are not able to get treatment is very upsetting. So it's, it's a developing field. New studies are coming out from the CDC all the time, but signs are pointing for bad news for Chagas in the United States in the coming years. Something to keep an eye on just like um, colloquially. Yeah. Yes, yeah. The big risks, not to like, I guess, to make sure that everyone's not like, you know, oh God, freaking out. Uh, there are like risks associated with kissing bugs. And mm -hmm. ironically, the risks associated with, associated with kissing bugs are actually different from the whole Lyme disease tick stuff. So it's actually living in more rural areas rather than living in the suburbs. So if you live oh. in a rural area, if you've done military service, if you go hiking, camping, gardening, because kissing bugs tend to, be found in more rural areas rather than suburban or urban areas. Okay, just don't fall asleep outside. Make sure your tent is shut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't. <laughs> yeah, they're active at night. They it's look very like massive bugs. So like, 
I don't know. How. Uh, range in size, depending on species. But yes, they can be. They can be like. I think there's a great picture out there that shows one on a hand, and they're about yay big. Different okay. stages as well as kissing bugs. Uh, lots of parasitic insects go through phases, and so they can be smaller when they're nymphs. Interesting. So I think we've kind of covered all of the examples that we had for this show. So I say that we run into commercial break and then whenever we come back, we want to touch a little bit more on why we care about parasites. And I think that one might be a quicker uh, segment, just, just <laughs> for the people that are watching and listening. So okay. <laughs> stick around. All right, this is segment three and four now. We decided we were gonna mash some things together. Uh, it seems like uh, things are going to flow in in the realm of why do we care about parasites? I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but we're gonna expand, expand on it. And while we're talking about that, Mew is going to also bake in what does being a parasitologist kind of look like. So it's, it's on the aspect of application um, and and what it means to be a parasitologist. So really exciting, actually. It's a very important field. As you know, we talked about a lot of very interesting, maybe sketchy things for the future. And yeah. it's always good to have brilliant and diverse minds out there working on these problems. So, okay, that was, that was cheesy. <laughs> Thank you for gassing me up. <laughs> You're welcome. Why do we care about parasites? Um, and you have a bullet here saying one health. What does one health mean? One health is probably the most important thing in parasitology, in my opinion, especially as someone who comes from a background of doing wildlife work. So one health is the idea that rather than look at uh, our topics separately, like, oh, if we take, you know, Shagas, which we were just talking about, Rather than look at the human cases separate from the wildlife cases, separate from the kissing bug itself, take it all into account and look at it all simultaneously because otherwise you're going to be missing things. So it's the idea of human health, wildlife health, and environmental health all coming together to make one health. I feel like it's one of those things that makes a lot of sense when you say it mm -hmm. and seems really obvious, but it actually is... It's, it's relatively new. I think it was coined in the 80s. And it's something that, it's very much a buzzword, but it's something that is still getting worked into a lot of research because tends to see, you tend to see papers that only look at a certain component of a system and are kind of neglecting to look at the holistic picture because of that. Because biology is super complex <laughs> and it's easier to just like put them into little categories, you know, not even little big categories and imagine taking the big categories and make it in a bigger category for a guy that knows physics and engineering biology is millions of times more complex so you're, i can see why you're saying you know it's good to do this but like it's new <laughs> and i was actually just talking about this i was just talking about this last night actually because i was talking with a friend about, you know, what ecology is and how it came about. And it's, you know, ecologists try to understand how they're really trying to do a one health thing, but not necessarily specifically health. They're trying to look at every single factor all at once. But when you're talking about biology, that's infinite. 
you can mm-hmm. you can have to consider so many different things. So instead, you have to kind of pick and choose which ones have the highest impact. Which physics background, especially I don't know if you've done anything really with on the space element. I used to used to date an astrophysicist. So <laughs> uh, I remember that he would talk a lot about like there's so you know space is basically infinite. Probably making this sound not yeah <laughs> no bad. Space is very big. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and there's so many things that you need to consider when you're, you know, coming up with formulas and things like that. And so not that you should not include things, but you need to find out which aspects have the most impact on what you're looking at. And that's that's ecology, really. And that also is One Health. Try to look at all three things, but all three things are gigantic and ginormous. So instead, find out the ones that are truly relevant and yeah. look at them together. Yeah, that makes sense. It's uh, Sorry, it's, nar- it's narrowing the complexity. Um, that makes sense from a uh, from a science standpoint. It really mm-hmm. does. Uh, it's with any with any any field, you should you have your assumptions. A good another good example though is uh, the dilution effect that we talked about previously. Mm-hmm. That's you know the Lyme disease system, which we typically look at through a human lens. But the dilution effect, the environmental and wildlife element, is a huge part of why Lyme disease is the way it is. It's a huge part of understanding who's getting infected, where they're getting infected, how they're getting infected. And so Lyme disease is also another poster child of One Health. Lyme disease has done a lot for parasitology. Hmm. Interesting. So I see here that the One Health also helps wildlife disease get funding. So that's is that is that what you're talking about? Or, or- Am I totally like? No, you you are right. Maybe this is more personal opinion, but as someone who's worked in wildlife, uh, in multiple different labs, adding that one health element has helped wildlife disease get more attention because this is this is a bit less on the actual science element, but on a funding element. There's not a lot of money to go around in parasitology. It is not a popular field. We don't get a lot of money. We don't get a lot of attention. Most of our money comes from like the NIH or the USDA. And USDA is going to care about things that are impacting livestock. And NIH only, as someone who's trying to get funding from them, only really cares about human health. And so when you're working on a disease that impacts wildlife and has the potential to impact humans, that one health element really helps kind of highlight like, hey, fund my work because it's relevant to humans. You Mm -hmm. don't want to wait until it becomes a problem and then start funding it. You should fund it before so we understand the system and potentially can mitigate it. What you're trying to say is you got to write, you got to know how or who you're writing to with these grants. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you know for sure, but it's definitely... I have I have strong feelings about it as someone who used to be in grad school. It can be kind of, it feels a little bit like pulling hair when you have to skew things a little bit for your grant in order to make sure that you're getting, you know, you're hitting the buzzwords. You know, <laughs> I as someone who worked on ticks, but I didn't do Lyme disease, I was heavily, heavily encouraged by all sorts of reviewers and, you know, in any talks that I gave to bring up Lyme disease even though it wasn't relevant to what I was doing, but because it made people's ears perk up and it made them care. Mm -hmm. And then the idea is that hopefully then, you know, once they're paying attention to me, I can keep their attention when I go and talk about hepatozoan. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's that's how you have to sell it. 
but it is a reality. Mm -hmm. And it's double-edged, it's double-edged because it sucks as the researcher sometimes, but it does also push us to explore the broader impacts of our of our research. Right, right. So speaking of research, we do want to talk about research implications with mm -hmm. parasites. Yeah, yeah. This was, I just think, a really interesting topic to dive into just a little bit. It's not my field of expertise, just to preface, but there are interesting elements going on with parasitology research to look at them as like mechanisms for drug delivery and also to try to understand like how are parasites so good at invading the human body at getting into our brain you know crossing the blood brain barrier is a huge thing and we it's hard to get drugs to do that sometimes so if you look at how parasites do it or potentially even find a way to use the actual like body but not disease causing agent of a parasite we could have new drug delivery systems such it's, such an intrusive thought just came into my mind and it and it's it's just like we can't even get someone to get a vaccine could you imagine saying we should put a parasite inside your body oh. to transport this drug yeah <laughs> I'm sorry yeah I didn't, to, I didn't mean to start that but it's just uh, intrusive it's thoughts. a yeah, it's probably because of that and because of those feelings, it's probably not something that we will see come to fruition anytime soon. But, you know, we still can learn the mechanisms and then we can try to put that into a, a less parasite-coded type of situation. It's like, okay, you know, what about this protein configuration that helps us understand, you know, what made this parasite last so long or what made it so good at invading macrophages? I think it's back to, to how you deliver it socially, right? So, uh, for example, like people out there that have microbiome issues, uh, they call it a fecal matter transplant or, or transfer. I don't think you want to tell the person that. Uh, I think you can deliver it in a different way. And they just don't need to know. It's like the, you know, the you ignorance find a is new buzzword. Yeah, find a new buzzword. Just don't say fecal. Uh, say something else. I, I don't know. I can't. I'm not. I'm not uh, good with those things. Get get like a get a poet or a find a an acronym maybe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just you're getting an, an FMT, FTT today, sir. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah. I think I think you would have to make some sort of a buzzword to get someone get the majority of people excited about putting parasites in their body. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And, and again, it doesn't have to be specifically parasites, because I think that is something that's a lot harder to get the research on that also hard to do, because we need to make sure everything is perfectly 100% safe. But we can also like understand a little bit about parasite mechanisms and how that'll help right. us understand even sometimes our human body, because like, there's a lot of intracellular parasites, actually, surprising amount. And when they're intracellular, even though they're not like viruses and they're not necessarily using the human genome to try to reproduce, they do actually have some impact on our DNA from time to time. That makes sense, I guess, from an epigenetic standpoint, I think that's what that falls under, epigenetics. Some of it's epigenetics, some of it is, um, I'm going to be butchering this. Again, biochemistry, not my strongest uh, standpoint. But some of the 
proteins and things like that that parasites use in order to complete their life cycle while intracellular. You know, those are those are not being produced in a bubble. Those are being produced within a human cell, and they can yeah. impact the expression of some of the DNA in the human cell and cause things like cancer and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe what it takes is just I write that sci-fi novel and fight parasites with parasites, and people are like, you know, that's not a bad idea. And then I'm like, whoa. Do I have news for you? Because whenever you went to the to the doctor, John, and you needed a better microbiome, you had a fecal matter transplant. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Okay. So now let's talk about you know being a parasitologist. What does what does that look like? Um, How does and, one research all these crazy things? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So I can only really truly give my lens, which is the wildlife lens, which is the cool lens, in my opinion. (laughs) I I am not a microbiologist, so I'm not doing any of the cell work. Those are the toxin people. They're so, so cool. My work was things like ticks. I did a lot of uh, working with like uh, helminths, so more worms and things like that. Not cellular, just to preface, because <laughs> I know that that is a whole, that's a whole other side of parasitology. A, you can do a lot of different work. I'm a wildlife person. My job was so cool. <laughs> I got to, I got to do, uh, I don't even know how to like jump into this, but basically I would get to go out and just catch wild animals because I was doing survey work to try to see you know, the, the presence of different pathogens within wildlife communities, or I was trying to, you know, even see which ones are good hosts, which ones are bad hosts, things like that. And so I just, I would go out there four o'clock, five o'clock on the morning, set up a net, catch birds, wild birds, handle them, get some feathers, get some blood. Sometimes we would take fecal samples. It's, it's a dirty job, but someone's going to do it, you know? <laughs> I loved that work so much. And I think it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea. I know a lot of people don't love handling animals, but as someone with like a vet background, that was awesome. Yeah, I think that would be the better route. I mean, some people are more are more hands-on with their research. So yeah, that's that's the route to go if, true. if you are. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like a pipeline too, because you've got the people doing field work, which is that wildlife work. Mm-hmm. Their samples you know, that's not the end of it. Those samples then get carried over into a lab setting, which I also worked in the lab setting as well because we did not have a lot of staff. <laughs> so <laughs> where's the money? <laughs> but, uh, we, you know, you can take something like a blood sample from a bird, you know, break that down, lyse the cells and do a DNA extraction and, then you're running a PCR to try to understand what parasites are in there. Then that data that you get from that, like the IDs can then move over to something like a bioinformatics lab that's trying to piece together all these different DNA profiles and understand, oh, this is the haplotypes. So parasitology is this web of work where you can, if you're a lab oriented person, there are so many jobs for you. If you only wanna catch wild animals, there's so many jobs for you. If you're a computer, like science person, there's a lot of jobs for you. <laughs> and yeah. 
it, it, it's very representative of the fact that like parasitology is a big field. You've got parasites in basically every single taxa. You've got parasitologists in every single field. I'm an ecologist. We've got microbiologists. We've got bioinformaticians. I'm sure there's probably a physicist somewhere doing parasite related work somehow. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. You know, uh, this is something that, that that just came to me because we were kind of chatting about like the complexity of the the One Health approach, and like yeah, that's whatever you. I, I don't know if you kind of said this, maybe you didn't, but like computer science might have a lot to do with this field because of handling the complexity of of these issues, um, and so like I, I could imagine that just like you know machine learning is just so important for the, yes. for the field moving forward. Yes, definitely. Uh, in the disease ecology area, especially, there's a lot of modeling going on. Yeah. So, you know, you've, you've had people collecting parasite data for 40 plus years, these ancient labs, and they've got, you know, they've got, <laughs> I worked in one of those ancient labs, so I can say it, but they've got records of like deer parasites going back to the 1960s. And this is just survey records. So it's just number of parasites, type of parasite, that things like that, without mm -hmm. any like no experimental work done on it. And you might go, oh, what's the use of that? But if you put that into a model, if a bioinformatician takes that stuff and then can can elucidate the themes and the trends going on, you get so much information from this age-old data. Yep. And that is very, that's a very active field. And it's honestly some of the coolest work out there to see what comes out of these models. Yeah. So if you're into data science and <laughs> you want, you want to uh, work with parasite, uh, parasite data, <laughs> contact me. We need you. <laughs> I know many people who would hire you. Yes. Do you have any resources in which uh, the listeners or the viewers in general of this podcast can resort to if they're interested in uh, parasitology? Yeah, they if they have job questions and they want to email me, they can email me at newisocks at gmail.com. And I actually I also have a discord as well which is linked on all my social medias and people go in there to talk about the papers they like or get job advice. It's, it's a interesting group of people. And then if they want to follow me on TikTok or on YouTube, I am UE socks on both of those. I'll make sure to, to throw that into the description that way, you know, everyone can find you and, and uh, <laughs> learn more about, about parasites and parasites. I love, yeah. I love getting questions from people too. So if there's anything I talked about in this episode, people want to know more about, email me, DM me. Beautiful. Well, Mew, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is wonderful. We covered a lot tonight. And I think, uh, well, tonight, you're today. I keep forgetting I'm in Poland. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Cheers. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. I just want to take a quick second and thank Mui Socks for sharing her knowledge and expertise in biology, parasitology, public health, and more. If you want to see more of her content, feel free to head to my website, everythingsteam.org, and go to this episode's page, or just head down to the episode's show notes in your respective platform. 
You can also search Mui Socks on TikTok and YouTube, preferably YouTube because she is making content full-time on that platform. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against those algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. And as always, stay curious.